Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Over the past few months, my oldest daughter and I have been reading the Harry Potter series aloud. And I have to say, even though it has been 25 years since the first book was published, and even though J.K. Rowling has been the subject of some public controversy in recent years, the story continues to be incredibly compelling. And what has been particularly fun is hearing Cecilia react to the story for the first time. She was absolutely flabbergasted when it was revealed that Harry was a wizard. Spoiler alert, sorry. It's also been interesting to note those moments when Rowling is clearly trying to impart life lessons to her young readers, something I was far less aware of the first time I read the series. At the end of the second book, for instance, Dumbledore, a sagacious old wizard who mentors the title character throughout the series, makes this penetrating observation. It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are, far more than our abilities. After I read that aloud, I read it again and turned to Cecilia saying, did you hear that? She looked at me for a second, then said, yeah, Dad, can you finish the chapter now? <laughs> Sassy eight-year-olds notwithstanding, the idea that our choices reveal who we are has stayed with me, and will, I hope, stay with her, too. Today, as we do every second Sunday of Advent, we heard an account of the ministry of John the Baptist. All four Gospels have something to say about John the Baptist, but they seem to have different perspectives on how his ministry began. Luke seems to indicate that John's ministry on the banks of the Jordan is one stop on an itinerant journey throughout Judea. John the Evangelist implies that the baptizer has been waiting to offer his testimony about Jesus pretty much forever. Matthew and Mark, on the other hand, simply tell us that John appeared in the wilderness without any warning. All of a sudden, the city of Jerusalem was buzzing about this bug-munching, sticky-fingered prophet who had clad himself in camel hair. And the abruptness of John's arrival makes his accusations against the religious authorities who have come to gawk at him all the more jarring. You brood of vipers, he rails. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming? Now, it is never easy to be called a snake, even by someone who most respectable people would agree is off his rocker. Nevertheless, the Sadducees and Pharisees probably would have comforted themselves to know that this marginal person probably didn't know all that much about them. After all, they were upright members of the community, rigorous observers of the law of Moses who could trace their lineage back to the earliest days of God's people. 
Despite their initial shock at John's impolite outburst, they could reassure themselves that he just didn't understand who he was talking to. But this reassurance would have been short-lived. John continues with his Jeremiah, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to bring up children to Abraham. In this brief indictment, John not only reveals that he knows exactly who his audience is, he also insists that their identity as members of God's chosen people will not save them from God's wrath. It's hard to overstate how devastating this judgment would have been. Being Abraham's ancestor was, in many ways, the ultimate religious distinction. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore. To be one of those descendants was to be the fruit of that promise. Moreover, this identity sustained God's people in the face of Roman occupation. The people of Israel could say of their imperial oppressors, they may have taken away our right to self-determination, but they can never take away the fact that we have Abraham as our ancestor. Being Abraham's ancestor, in other words, provided God's people with a degree of existential security, a bulwark against the changes and chances of life. And John demolishes this perspective like a wrecking ball by saying that being Abraham's ancestor doesn't say anything about the people who claim that identity. That God could take a handful of rocks and call them descendants of Abraham. In his ministry along the banks of the Jordan, John argues that the identity that had defined God's people for so long was functionally meaningless. And while this may have been devastating to John's audience on the banks of the Jordan, it was also good news. Because implicit in John's withering judgment was a radical assumption. We are not defined by who we have been. We are not defined by who we are related to. We are not defined by our membership in a particular group. John's audience believed that their identity as children of Abraham afforded them a special status, but they also assumed that this status locked them into a particular way of being in the world. John not only challenges this notion— he invites those gathered by the Jordan to think about the things that they can do, telling them to bear fruit worthy of repentance. In his ministry by the Jordan, John the Baptist proclaims that what we have been, what we have done, what others say about us, what we say about ourselves, all of these are less important 
than what we do today and in the future. To put it another way, our identity is not chosen for us. It is shaped by the choices we make. It is our choices that show what we truly are. Now, you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. I think we misunderstand repentance. In the popular imagination, repentance is about grieving for the things we have done wrong or performing acts of contrition to demonstrate how sorry we are. We see this when public figures apologize, don't we? The sense one gets is that they are simply saying what they need to say to go back to doing exactly what they were doing before. And in this sense, repentance amounts to saying some magic words that will wipe away our sins, or at least make them less obvious to the people around us. But repentance, the repentance that John proclaims at the Jordan River, repentance is rooted in a much deeper assumption. Repentance is predicated on the notion that people can change. And this may be one of the most radical assumptions of the Christian faith. Because our culture tends to assume that change is impossible. We are encouraged to believe that our destinies are fixed, to mistrust any change of heart. Now, one can see the wisdom of being skeptical when people start behaving in a radically different manner, particularly when it appears to benefit them. But John would not have called his people to repentance if he didn't believe that they were able to change the way they were living their lives. By the same token, we who heed John's warnings today are called to trust that change is possible, that we can choose another path through life, that our future is not defined by the past. And it goes without saying that choosing another path is not always easy. In fact, I would argue it is never easy. It often requires us to return to where we started, to walk past all those mistakes we have made and all those people we have hurt before we are able to choose a more fruitful and life-giving way forward. Indeed, it is often much easier to simply carry on with the way things have been going, to follow the path we have already established to avoid the necessity of choice altogether. Inertia, after all, is a very powerful force. But our faith challenges us to do the difficult work of discernment. 
It challenges us to turn away from those things that deny the image of God in ourselves and others and choose those things that reveal God's glory, those things that build up our communities and our relationships. In so many ways, this season of Advent is about choice. Our call is to remember that our identity is not chosen for us. It is shaped by the choices we make.